You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations. What up? Welcome be in when you get to there. Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute. In November of last year, many fans of Taylor Swift met a cruel fate at the hands of Ticketmaster when the website crashed while they attempted to purchase tickets for her upcoming tour. And if there's one thing in this world that's true, it's that there is no fury like the Swifties scorned. Our society is pretty divided. Like, to be honest, there isn't really much of anything that we agree on, including the importance of the doomsday clock. A lot of us probably had the same first friend on social media, but since we haven't heard from him in a while, maybe we should pop in and see how he's doing. All of that on this edition of Commute. Let's get it. So Dave, you're probably in the same boat as me in that you used to see a lot of live music, but then life got a little busier as you got older and the kids came along and the job had more responsibilities and you know now you're not seeing as much live music. But uh, I know for me at least, when I think about Ticketmaster, I'm immediately sort of transported back to like trying to navigate a website and then getting to the end and being like, why does this cost this? <laughs> yeah, like there's all these weird fees attached when you buy tickets. But the bigger thing is that tickets, for some reason, and I think it's just like a post-COVID thing, I I don't know, but they've just gone through the roof. So one of my wife's favorite bands is a band called Paramore. And so Paramore, popular band, popular rock band, they've been around for a while, they're going on tour. And so we've seen them before, and I think the last time we got tickets to see them, it was maybe like 35, 40, 45 bucks a ticket, which was a little steep. Well, I was going to get her tickets for Christmas this year. $300. (laughs) Like, who do they think they are? Who do they? How dare you? (laughs) Like, you're not the Beatles. You know what I mean? Come on. So, Dave, last week, the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing that was titled, That's the Ticket, Promoting Competition and Protecting Consumers in Live Entertainment. The hearing was mainly focused on the company Live Nation Entertainment, a company that is composed of Live Nation, which is a venue operator and promoter, and then the aforementioned Ticketmaster, which is a ticket sales company. So these two companies merged in 2010, and today Live Nation dominates an estimated 70% of the ticketing and live event market. But how did we get to the point where the Senate is hyper-focused on this industry, but also this company in particular? Well, it all starts back in November of 2022. Ticketmaster exclusively had lined up tickets for pop superstar Taylor Swift's upcoming 2023 tour, and millions of fans descended on the website to get in a digital line to purchase them. But this caused the website to overload and then crash and ultimately led to frozen screens, long wait lines, and missed opportunities to buy tickets to now sold out shows, sparking a wildfire of anger amongst Taylor Swift fans. 
Fans began calling for more federal oversight of the industry and pointing the monopoly finger at Ticketmaster. And while this is not the first time that consumers have made a call for the breakup of the company, and it's not the first time the Justice Department has reportedly looked into misconduct on the part of the company, this is the first time that those calls gained the level of traction that they have now. Now, actually, back when the merger first happened, Dave, the condition was that Live Nation could not retaliate against a venue if they did not use Ticketmaster. Well, in 2019, the DOJ enforced this, alleging that Live Nation did just that, leading to the company having to settle with the government. Studies on ticket sales have shown some not great numbers for Ticketmaster either, like that 27% of the average ticket price sold by the company were fees that an average consumer couldn't even identify where the money was going. The main accusation here is that Live Nation Entertainment is a monopoly, which is sort of tricky language because having a monopoly in the United States isn't necessarily illegal, but establishing and then maintaining a monopoly through improper conduct to not allow others into the market? Well, that is. Musicians actually testified at the hearing last week that Live Nation Entertainment had made it almost impossible for them to use any other ticket distributor other than Ticketmaster because of the venue sizes. Now, ironically, one of the bands that testified, a band called Lawrence, actually has a song called Live Nation is a Monopoly, which seems a little (laughs) too on the nose. It's aggressive. (laughs) Now, the Senate hearing, Dave, since it was sort of inspired by Taylor Swift, there were several just fantastic or cringy references to her by those conducting it, depending on your point of view. Senators found some pretty creative ways to lyric drop, such as when Senator Richard Blumenthal from Connecticut said, Ticketmaster should look in the mirror and say, I'm the problem, it's me, in reference to the song Antihero. Or when Senator Mike Lee from Utah said, a lot of people seem to think that somehow a solution, I think it's a nightmare dressed like a daydream, (laughs) referencing the song (laughs) Blank Space. Now, there are many more, but I can feel the listeners cringing, so let's go ahead and move on from here. Now, Live Nation Entertainment here is pushing back, saying that essentially their bots failed on the website because of the volume of fans, but due to the blackout, a general ticket sale was canceled. The dominoes that fell here led to the Senate opening an antitrust investigation. But antitrust investigations, well, they're notoriously difficult to finish because at the federal level, at least, the government has displayed a hesitancy to get involved in the market and force a company to break up. It's pretty rare, especially in the tech industry. But this felt a little different. There were literally protesters outside of the U.S. Capitol during the hearing. And Taylor Swift has somehow done the impossible and actually united Republicans and Democrats over something, somehow. And while this certainly isn't the last protester hearing, the macro view here, Dave, it's sort of fascinating. The conversation around business and the role of government in it, all inspired by angry fans. And at least for now... It seems like Live Nation Entertainment and the Senate maybe have some bad blood. Get it? Because she has a song called Ah, Bad Blood. I see what she did there. It was good. Tickets for the upcoming uh, Taylor Swift Eras Tour uh, are in a class of their own in terms of the resale price on them. So a lot of those tickets are going for as high as (laughs) $30,000. Think about that. But historically, there are other concerts that have also gone for a lot of money. So you could look back at Elton John. So Elton's uh, farewell tour when he came back after COVID, 
Those tickets went for around $2,000 per. You've got the Justin Bieber Purpose Tour in 2022. Those went for about $1,000 per ticket. (laughs) But Jay, it all pales in comparison to Led Zeppelin's 2007 London Reunion, where one fan paid $168,000 for a ticket. See, I know I'm not wired this way because in the past when I've paid a little too much for concert tickets i've just sat there and thought about it for the entire concert so like my wife and i went to see the the avit brothers a couple years ago when they were in our hometown and i think i ended up paying like a hundred dollars or something for both tickets which is not that much i guess when you add all the fees and all that stuff but i sat there the whole time and every time they'd play a song i'd be like well that song cost me like six dollars something that either you do or maybe somebody else in your life does that perhaps makes sense to them, but it doesn't really make sense to everybody. Well, you know, I'm an educator and I teach ninth grade. And uh, anytime I have the kids do projects on their computers, I try to like force a conformity, right? So like do it on Microsoft Word or do it on Microsoft PowerPoint. Everybody do it that way. And there's always like one kid in the class who's like a contrarian to su- for some reason. And I always call him like keynote guy. You know, he's always like, well, I like to do keynote because it's easier. Or like I like to use pages because it's easier. And it's like, these are literally the same program. Like if I blindfolded you, you would not be able to tell the difference between the two. It's like, hate to break it to you, bro, but people are not using pages. We all use yeah. Microsoft Word. If anything, people are making fun of you for using pages. It's like, let me teach you a social lesson here. If you're using pages, let us know. (laughs) But Jay, when it comes to my life, something that I have done in the past that made sense to me, but really didn't make sense to anybody else, was uh, when I was trying to transition as a kid from just the dorky, whitey, tidy underwear to cool underwear like boxers. Okay, so I, I really wasn't feeling too confident about just switching to the much more loose fitting boxers. And so I decided to do what made sense to me and wear both. <laughs> so, like, the whitey tighties had boxers over top of them. So uh, plenty of issues come with that, obviously. It's hot. you got to do double the laundry. The list goes on and on. But one day at basketball practice, one of the older kids shanked me. And if you're unfamiliar with what shanking is, it's basically what stupid high school kids do to each other. You try to pull down your friend's shorts to embarrass them, and they're just in their underwear. Well, he tried to pull down my shorts to embarrass me, and my underwear came with it. Thankfully for me, and unbeknownst to him, I had on two pairs, so I was fine. I wasn't naked, but he then saw that I was wearing two pairs of underwear, and I can still, I have nightmares about it. I can still hear it. Hey, look, y'all, Dave wears two pairs. (laughs) And that's when you became known as Double Up Dave. uh, But Jay, something else somewhat strange that people are a little divided on is the importance of what's called the Doomsday Clock. Jay, if you're unfamiliar, here's a quick rundown of what the Doomsday Clock is. Created by the University of Chicago in 1947 and now run and maintained by what I'm sure is a fun group of people named the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Oh, The Doomsday Clock is a metaphor, an easy-to-understand analogy that exists to show people how close we are to Armageddon at any given moment. And Jay, midnight on the clock, yep, you guessed it, represents Doomsday. 
So the closer the hands creep to midnight, the closer our society is to complete and total nuclear oblivion. It really serves as a measuring stick for some as to just how close we may be to blowing ourselves up. While to others, it's really, really, really pointless. Originally set at 11.53 p.m. in 1947 during the Cold War, Jay, the clock has since been adjusted, you know, since we're still alive and everything, more than 25 times since its creation, including being shifted forward 90 seconds earlier just this month, January of 2023. So what triggers a movement in this clock? Well, that's a very good question. So let's look back at how time has fluctuated through the years on the doomsday clock, all leading to what is perhaps our eventual doom. In 1953, just six years after the clock was created, the clock rapidly shot forward to 1158. It was during this time that the U.S. and Soviet Union were testing nuclear weapons. So yeah, I'd say that's cause for a near stroke to midnight. By 1972, though, the clock had taken a giant step backwards. Starting that year with plenty of time left to live a full life at 1148, treaties signed by both the United States and Soviet Union had seriously weakened the threat of nuclear war. Three such treaties had been signed between 1968 and 1972, helping the clock go backwards and give us some relief. By 1984, the clock was getting a serious workout. Things weren't nearly as lovey-dovey between the U.S. and Soviet Union, and an arms race was heating up. Throw in the rise of terrorist activity abroad, and the clock was now at 11.57, the closest we'd been to certain death since the early 1950s. Through the 1990s and 2000s, the clock would range anywhere from 17 minutes to midnight to 7 minutes to midnight, all leading slowly to the most recent reset putting us the closest to extinction that we've been since 1953 at just two minutes to midnight as of today. So, Jay, what does all this mean? Well, honestly, nothing. (laughs) While some feel that the clock is useful because it helps provide us once again with a measuring stick on the quality of world relations, others think it does nothing but create fake panic. Steven Pinker, author and cognitive psychologist, harshly criticized it in the book Enlightenment Now, calling it nothing more than an inconsistent political stunt, and warned that it was an example of humanity's tendency to be pessimistic and self-destructive. But Jay, whether you think it's a good idea or a bad one, there's one thing that it's hard to argue about when it comes to the doomsday clock. By the time that this metaphorical clock hits midnight, there won't be anyone left to care. Well, the doomsday clock kind of loses its power a little bit when you realize that they literally can't take it to midnight. Because if they take it to midnight, what's the point, you know? Like, if they don't hit that thing to midnight and I don't blow up, I'm done checking the updates. People are all about this thing. There are people that just wait for it to be reset every year. (laughs) Well, you know, Keynote Kid in my class just grows up to be Doomsday Clock Obsessed Kid, probably. There's a connection there. And he does a heck of a presentation (laughs) in Keynote. So Dave, you and I both grew up around the same time. We went through high school around the same time. And we were both on MySpace, right? Which was kind of like the first social network to kind of grab teenagers by storm when it popped onto the scene sometime around the mid-2000s. 
So what was your experience like on MySpace? When I think back to MySpace, really the first thing that comes to mind is it had this really unique feature where it would have you rank your friends. Yeah, I so love it, it. it. It had a top eight, okay? So you would rank your favorite friends, and you'd put them in your MySpace top eight. So let's just say, Jay, I had my MySpace right now. Obviously, I'd have to have my wife at number one, but I'd throw you in at number two. Okay, okay. I'm a little so, hurt, but it's understandable. Well, I'm, I am married to her. She lives in my house. <laughs> but, you know, she'd be one, you'd be two. But here's the thing. If we started to have some trouble, she'd start to move down. Like, that yeah. would be the first sign of trouble before anybody else knew is, oh, oh, Dave's wife's now number four. Kids of today can't even understand the level of drama that you oh, had to go through with the passive aggressive nature. Eight. When you're breaking up with somebody and you slowly moved them out of your top eight. Yeah, oh, and like, I have such a, like, more of appreciation for MySpace now because I'm thinking back to when I was on it, and then I think about what social media is now, right? Like, MySpace, I didn't have anyone trying to sell me anything. I didn't have any influencers being like, look at my perfect house and your house should look like this. So I have a new appreciation for that. And today, Dave, we're going to take a look at the story of Tom Anderson, the man who created this site, one of the most popular social networks of the 2000s. He was your first friend. If you made a MySpace profile, his profile picture is hilarious because it's like kind of grainy and it's like from a distance. Like it's not a very good profile picture. It's not an HD and he never changed it ever. And you'd always look at your friends list and be like, who's Tom? Right. And so uh, MySpace, if we're going back, let's talk a little bit about the history of it first. It was launched in 2003 and it quickly rose to become really the most popular social network in the world uh, with over 100 million active users at its peak. But who is Tom Anderson and how did he create such a successful platform? So Tom Anderson was born in Rockville, Maryland in 1970 and studied computer science at California State University, Northridge, and later worked as a software engineer at a company called ResponseBase. In 2003, Anderson co-founded a company called eUniverse, and then the company later changed its name to Intermix Media. So in 2003, Intermix Media launched MySpace, this social networking website that allowed users to create profiles, share photos, music, videos, and then just connect with friends online. The platform was designed to be a place where users could express their individuality and connect with like-minded people. And MySpace quickly became a hit with users, thanks in large part to its really easy-to-use interface and the ability to customize your profile with HTML. But by 2006, MySpace had surpassed Google as the most visited website in the United States. The platform was particularly popular with musicians and bands who used it to promote their music and then connect with fans. But unfortunately, Dave, MySpace's success was short-lived. In 2007, Facebook overtook MySpace as the most popular social network, and MySpace's user base began to decline. The platform struggled to keep up with this rapidly changing pace in the social media landscape, and it lost its edge to these newer and more innovative platforms. So Anderson actually sold the company to Rupert Murdoch's new corporation for $580 million. And then that company actually turned around and sold it for years later for $35 million after its decline. So, you know, Tom, like could not have had better timing here. And despite MySpace's decline, Tom Anderson's legacy lives on. He is credited with creating one of the first successful social networks and paving the way for the social media landscape that we know today. Like we said earlier, he served as the first friend of every MySpace user and was affectionately known as Tom from MySpace to millions of users around the world. 
But Dave, where is Tom now? That was the question we started with. And I think the answer to this question is pretty mysterious, believe it or not. While Tom does have an active social network account on Instagram and Twitter, he very rarely posts. He'll pop on to make a snarky comment every once in a while, like in 2012 when he posted, people keep asking, so I'll say it, fear over Instagram's terms change is ridiculous. Get real folks. And then received a reply from a user saying, says the guy who is not able to keep a social network alive. To which Tom responded, says the guy who sold MySpace in 2005 for $580 million while you <laughs> slave away hoping for half a day off. There he, he recently is. popped up again last year when Elon Musk jokingly or seriously tweeted that he was potentially looking for a CEO of Twitter, and Tom responded with just a screenshot of his MySpace profile. But it seems like, honestly... Tom is just sort of living the millennial dream, traveling around the world at will, worth millions of dollars, seemingly not a care in the world. And Dave, to me, that's sort of a beautiful thing. It reminds me of the simplicity of MySpace and what it once was, up against the ad-riddled, algorithm-driven, misinformation machine we see on social media today. On MySpace, no one wanted anything from us. We were just living in the moment. So I thought I was on to gold. I, I keyed this up, and I was going to search for this while you were doing your segment, which I just did. And I got some faulty intel because the original thing I found said, yeah, you go to the MySpace page that exists now. MySpace is still a website. And you type in anyone's name, and it'll bring up an archived version of their page. And I thought, this is going to be so good. Jay's page will pop up. <laughs> and so I type it in, and, and then I thought it was you. So this Jay Sisson character comes up. And I quickly realized it wasn't you, because this person goes by Jay Sisson, the Dragon Man. <laughs> <laughs> There's a plenty you don't know about me. <laughs> I mean, I really, I was getting hyped. Like, this is incredible. Jay went by the Dragon Man. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jay the Dragon Man Sisson, I'm Dave Tropp. We'll see you next week. You ever looked up uh, Florida and your birthday? You ever done that? The, the Florida, Florida Man challenge? challenge? Yeah. Yeah. The Florida, uh, are you talking about the Florida Man Challenge? Yeah, that's how you do it, right? You, yeah, you, like so I actually have my students do it once a year because it's hilarious. They yeah. Google their birthday and then Florida Man. And you get like a hilarious uh, headline. Like mine was like Florida Man fakes his own death with a gun and a weather balloon or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Florida Man twerks for officers during traffic stop gets tased. <laughs> well, and news outlets have kind of leaned into it because they realize like how hilarious the Florida man sort of like meme is. So they purposely try to write their headlines to be like this. It's genius. I mean, it's another one on my birthday. Naked Florida man causes fire while baking cookies. I have less questions about the fire. I have more questions about like why is he naked baking cookies? <laughs>